Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 31. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Woodford, who is amongst many, many other things, the race circuit manager at Cadwell Park. Welcome to Rear View, Paul. I'd like to start off by asking, what is a race circuit manager? Hello, Andrew. Delighted to be here. I guess you've got to look at it as the business manager for the best leisure centre in the world, because essentially what we do here is leisure. Of course, yes, you never thought of it like that. It, it is so, of course, you think of it as a, a race circuit manager, and yes, there is the race circuit to manage, but actually there's all the other things that go along with having a public-facing business as well. We've got all the facilities, we've got all the public uh, leisure activities to look after, the clubhouse, we've got all the things that happen in between racing, so all the corporate events and all the testing and other things to administer. We've got a team of people here who work with Brands Hatch, our Motorsport Vision head office. So it, it's very much a, a business-like any other, but in a lot of ways, it's a business like no other. So what made you uh, go, mm, that sounds like a good idea? If I'm going to be poetic, when I was very, very young, um, I used to make racetracks out of balls of string on my grandma's floor when we used to go and visit my grandparents. Um, a fact that my parents actually reminded me of when we were chatting to Jonathan Palmer a little bit recently. Um, and then from three <laughs> years old, I've been coming to Cadwell Park. So it, when the job came up, it fitted in so many ways, but what it also did was kind of tie in all the other things that I've been doing. As you mentioned before, I've had a lot of hats um, from the motorsport media through to um, working in marketing, communications and managing things. So it all kind of seemed to come together when I applied for the job and I got the job on that basis. Right. Well, we will delve much further into all that and your other, your other, many other hats. Um, but um, you've you've started us off really because uh, one of the first things I like to to find out is where your interest in car com- cars come from and do you remember when? Um, but uh, obviously racing was an interest. No, oh, absolutely. From very early on. Yeah, my my parents used to rally, so mum used to co-drive for dad, and so the story goes, it stopped and only really stopped working when uh, every time mum called a pace note, dad used to ask if she was sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've had motorsport <laughs> I could in the blood. not imagine trying to do rally driving with my wife, I have to say. No, no, I think they were quite brave doing that. So I, I used to go to school in a variety of rally cars from minis to Saab 96s and Mark 1 Escorts, which was always quite cool. But we've had motorsport in the family from since as long as I can remember. And um, when you're going through school and stuff, did, did this uh, obviously interest in motorsport, did were you the were you sitting in the corner and drawing rally cars or race cars, um, or were you making decisions uh, for the limited choices you could have in school of your lessons that you you could take, sort of with an idea to do something in motorsport as time went on? No, it was never that grand or planned. It was literally, as you said before, just sitting in the corner drawing rally cars and race cars and just imagining that in the future I might work in motorsport. And of course, at that time, every little boy wants to be a Formula One driver or a world rally driver. I didn't quite make those dizzy heights, but you know, I'm, I'm managing my favourite racetrack in the world, so I didn't fall far short, in, in my head at least. No, well, you did do rallying as well, didn't you? So when, when did that start? Um, well, I'd always wanted to do it. And obviously when kids come along, things change. And dad had ended up over the years selling the rally cars and not doing any motorsport. And I sort of nagged him. Um, I just remember nagging and nagging to get a go-kart or get a rally car or something. And we worked out that actually economically after doing a bit of karting, rallying would be just as cheap or just as expensive, depending on which way you look at it. So um, I think I was about <laughs> 12 when we first started building a car. 
And we, mm. you know, we, we bought an old Mark One Escort and built it into a road rally car. And then we built a Mark II Cortina GT and turned that into a works rally replica. And that was the first car that I competed in. I think I was just 17 um, when we first went out and I competed on a sprint, actually, with a, a club which now I end up working with here at Cadwell called Auto 66. And that was fun. So you'd have to get a, a race license before you did that, is that Yes, correct? I did. I got an MSA license. You'll have license. to excuse my ignorance. I, d- I really don't know much about the uh, necessities to get into yeah, motorsport. Yeah, I had to get I a like watching it, but... in order to compete. So <laughs> I was, at the time, that was pretty cool. I was 17 and just learned to drive. And then I was um, getting a competition license as well. So did you get the competition license before your driving license? I did, um, although it doesn't qualify <laughs> you to drive necessarily. It just qualifies you to compete. So um, and okay. it, it was really, I mean, I passed my driving test very soon after my 17th birthday. I felt I'd been waiting all my life for it. So it wasn't long between that and then getting out competing. But it was quite a baptism of fire in an old Mark II Cortina, a big, heavy rear-wheel drive car. How did that first one go? It went well. I mean, at that point, it was all about just getting some experience and just getting to know the car. And it was it was the full package. It was working on the car and setting the car up. And, you know, I was a massive classic Ford fan at the time as well. So it was it was a full experience, really. And at that point, it wasn't so much a, a career in motorsport. I was after as much as I just wanted to drive rally cars. And you know, I didn't mind how mm. that looked or how it came about, really. So how long did it take you then from doing sprints to move into um to, do, to move into the full-on rally? Um, I went to university and I decided at university I would build a racing car. So I built a stock hatch Fiesta um, while I was at uni. And the rally as, idea... As one does. Of, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I had about three part-time jobs to build to fund it. And while all my mates were out getting drunk, I was, I was building a racing car. So my idea was to go racing. Um, I did a few sort of stock hatch events, not race events, just sort of test days and things at various circuits and then realized that actually rallying was still where my heart was and at that point I was writing for Classic Ford magazine and um, Fast Ford and Total Vauxhall and a few other publications so I was very much heading the rally way because every time there was a rally car that came up guess what I'd be the one going to feature it so after I finished uni I decided a rally like car. the idea of more sideways than <laughs> yeah I'd, just the whole at that point rallying was where my kind of family motorsport heritage was and everything I, I loved about motorsport I mean I, I loved Formula One I loved touring cars but rallying just had something a little extra for me it's that extra teamwork it's you know the, the whole experience of at that point of course I'd go and come uh, go and watch on the RAC rally which was a true endurance event mm. you know like no other type of motorsport really so that really had my heart and so after university it was a case of right I'm going to build a rally car, then realised that I'd be better buying one that was already built. So I went to the Isle of Man <laughs> to pick up an old um, Simon Majors uh, rally winning, championship winning Ford KA actually from the Isle of Man, which promptly blew its engine on the way back on the Ouse Bridge on the M62. So oh. my rally uh, adventure started pretty badly. <laughs> and uh, how how long did you compete with that then, once it was obviously re-engined? <laughs> Did a couple of single venue seasons with that, with my brother um, co-driving for me, and on occasion my best mate Tom. And it was it was just a real family experience. I mean, the first rally we we got to after rebuilding the car from the ground up, we literally bare shelled the car. And I rebuilt it in a single garage. We had the engine rebuilt, everything, and we were about, I think, about five hundred yards into the first stage, and the engine blew. Oh no. Um, yeah, so it really wasn't going well, but I learned so much from that one moment because I realized there were so many other people that had helped get us to that place. And actually, if I stood there and had a tantrum and got stroppy, then do you know what? They'd all get stroppy as well. So I took it on the chin and um, it was a very good lesson in 
learning to cope with those kind of situations to be honest yeah yeah it, it, it i mean watching it at the moment on uh because i've i've uh, had a um found a relove of wrc this year yeah i mean i think the the cars look fab the tv coverage now when you've got drones and all that sort of stuff is the camera work is just brilliant and you get of as close as one is going to get unless you are stood there getting gravel or dust thrown over you or you're in the car um and it's showing the sort of stuff that we wouldn't normally see which is uh well i feel it does the uh, the drivers and co-driver relationship and as what you were saying then about teamwork i mean they're both congratulating each other very much when they get across the line and then you see when they go into the well the the tents for their for the service areas uh you can see everybody's you know everyone's got one mind it's to get this car and this driver to the end as quickly as possible um and uh i i just it's just been it's been brilliant to watch again um after a few years of it not being as interesting or exciting yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd argue with it not being as interesting or exciting because I think the WRC has always been a pinnacle. But I think any level of motorsport and any type of motorsport from stock cars through to stock hatch racing, through to single seater, through to rallying, you've still got that camaraderie. You've still got that moment in the service area or in the paddock or in the pit lane where everything you do in those few minutes you're allowed to tinker with the car or get the drivers prepped or anything else matters so much and really does influence what happens out on the circuit or out on the stage and i think that's the draw for motorsport for me for me it's the ultimate team sport you think about motor racing you think about one person out in a car on a circuit but actually there's a whole lot more to it than that yeah to the, the steps that have to happen to get that one person actually on the track yeah and it's, from it's, the sporting point of view that that's exactly what it's all about but for me it was always the cars it was you know before anything i was lucky enough to compete in um peter solberg's 2007 um subaru world rally car which was quite an experience i actually it was the only event i ever took uh, an overall rally winning co-driving for graham coffee and those cars are phenomenal you know you, having competed at club level and then to compete in a car like that it's just the difference is uh, astounding what what do you think the different oh, wait, obviously there's money's been thrown at it but what, what are the differences for you then the differences don't really start and end anywhere it's that different they're they're like completely different machines the dynamics of a top level race or rally car are completely different to anything you've ever experienced in a road car they really are you can drive i've driven a lot of supercars i've been very very fortunate to drive some really amazing cars but until you've been in a car that's been built for rallying or for racing and is designed to go round corners as quickly as it possibly can and to use its own intelligence to find the best grip on launch and everything like that um you haven't had that experience it's just it's out of this world you know they, they move differently to anything else the dynamics are just the first thing that hit you first time i did a test in a world rally car um, was actually wow. with matt wilson in um in the fiesta world rally car and just the way the cars move is it's just you can't actually describe it without having put somebody in that seat everything just moves like it was meant to go around corners oh right okay okay oh yeah, well, one would hope as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but it's doing it so much quicker. Yeah, and, that's uh, it. And, yeah, I mean, I've been in Group B cars. I've, I've been looking of again to drive a, a 6R4 Metro. And they're very agricultural and they've got so much force. You know, it's brute force. When you put your foot down, the thing goes. But you just have to hang on for dear life. You know, when you're going around the corners, if you're going around the corners on power, you, 
you're going to struggle to hang on unless you know what you're doing. Whereas in a world rally car, these cars are designed to to really fit around the driver and they, they're very much you sat as far back and as low down as you possibly can. You can barely see the, you know, the top of the bonnet. They're, they're incredible machines. Just how most sports moved on when you see the different cars and you get inside them and have a look around when you're walking down a pit lane or you don't even have to compete to, to feel and have a look at how different these cars are. That, that's what the attraction always was for me. It was the, the engineering side and the kind of history of the car. You know, you look at, when I was uh, growing up watching motorsport, the Escort Cosworth was my pin-up rally car. But you mm. look at the you know the evolution of the Escort from the Mark Ones, and even before that, the Anglias and the Cortinas that kind of led to the Escort, and that's just fascinating. The fact that the story of motoring is kind of echoed on the motorsport stage. I love that. Yeah, it is. It is uh, rallying is one of those. It is one of those few uh, race series where you can see a link between a road car and the race car yeah and, i think there's uh, quite a few uh, of that i think there's quite a few series like that and that's the draw when you get down to somewhere like cadwell park and you have a look around the paddock you know it, it, you can identify so much with what's going on even if you haven't competed mm, yeah yeah and i think that's a success for british touring car as well uh more uh, so in the past i think those yeah. cars actually have gone the other way i think they're nothing like the road cars you can buy on the road now and they've become much more kind of silhouette and they've obviously all got the same engine gearbox. It's mm, BTCC, although the competition and the intrigue is just as good. For me, the cars aren't quite what they should be. Okay. They're not quite close enough. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, well, there's, there's lots of them this year, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, it's a great story, and the championship is as good as ever. It's just I yeah. preferred the days of the Super Tourers, which actually, when you look at a Super Touring car from the 90s, they're nothing like the road car equivalent either, but they just... You know, they they seem somehow more identifiable. Well, I could play that on my PlayStation, you see. Yeah, exactly. We've got a, um, a like a green room, I call it, for the maintenance team here at Cadwell Park, and they've got a steering wheel set up. And I noticed as I walked through yesterday, speak to the lads, they had Toka Touring Cars playing out on it. Oh, yeah, takes exactly. me back many, yeah. many hours. Pixelated <laughs> Volvo S40s. There's nothing better, is there? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you, um, how long did you continue to do... Um, rallying and did anything else? Were you doing? I presume you were doing other things at the same time because um, you needed to pay for it and things like that. Yeah. Engines, by the sound of it, um, initially. Uh, so, so were you doing other elements involved in the motoring world, or were you just going? I need a job just to pay for this, so I'm doing a job. Um, no, not really. In the background, there was always this: I want to work in motorsport and at that point i always wanted to be um a top gear presenter mm -hmm. or a tv presenter doing motorsport and uh, i was sort of working towards that in the background of doing the rallying that's really how the the whole tv side came about anyway because somebody in the service area once said to me do you want to do some voiceover for our dvds um and so i, I was very much working towards that side of things I kind of realized by then that without the uh, substantial financial backing that it would take there was no chance i was even going to get a shot without even considering talent levels or anything else, uh, going for a career in motorsport driving. So mm. I was doing it really, getting a sensible job to pay for the rallying and to then sustain me sort of chasing this dream of working in motorsport. You've done a voiceover. How long was it before you were actually doing some presenting? And was uh, um, was that, is it special stage? Yeah, it, it wasn't called special stage at the time. That was a name we came up with um, for the show once we got the deal with Motors TV. But it was 
to begin with, very much um, we got a, a deal to cover the British Cross Country Championship, and that was only a matter of weeks, probably after I said that I'd, I'd do a few DVDs um, <laughs> in return for DVDs. You know, there was no kind of yeah. commercial uh, deal at that point. It was just, it, it was just one of those things that sort of well, you're cutting your teeth, spiral. You? Exactly. And at that point, I was studying script writing at university, or I just finished actually studying script writing at university, and. Um, I was doing the rallying and it all seemed to fit together and we did this cross-country stuff and then the BTRDA came calling and said look we want a TV series you guys are new on the scene but you seem to know what you run about you seem to be passionate about the sport and we think that we're going to give you a shot at this so we had to do a few sort of screen tests and various other little demos and things like that and after that we just sort of started getting job after job in the rally world on TV and then Special Stage was born really. Interesting to hear you say the script stage, uh, script writing um, that you did that at university because uh, that it, it does having done something like this which I'm recorded and I can edit quite heavily to remove my stumbling and ums and ahs and all the rest of it for someone to stand in front of someone else live and uh, who's say just got out of a car is perhaps which would be kind a little bit emotional yeah. One way or the other, and then you you have you are there with the microphone, and you are asking them questions that you know the list the viewers want to listen to and hear the response to, but also uh, you've got to bear in mind that you you're trying to get the person to talk to you as well. That seems quite a trick. Yeah, and it's something which didn't come easily to begin with because until you've got a bit of credibility and a bit of respect from people it's very difficult um to get the best out of them because they don't know who you are and they're not going to open up their mind and give you raw emotion but it's it's about being human at the end of the day if you can talk to someone in real life you can talk to them with a microphone that's the way i see it but Mm -hmm. the scripted stuff is is great and i've done a lot of that i've been very fortunate to work for a lot of car manufacturers and dealer groups and various other motoring organizations doing scripted film-based stuff but it's the live stuff that's where it really comes alive and that's where your passion for the sport and for motoring in general can really come out for example last year i did formula student with alexander and agree and we did a four-day live stream which was it was live for a good six seven eight hours a day and you know, we had some recorded VT packages in there, but in between we were filling and that was exciting. We had to get to know the paddock, we had to get to know the stories, we had to work together and throw back to the studio and had a, a gallery talking in our ears to explain where things were happening. And and that was where everything I'd ever wanted to do in, in most of what kind of felt like it had started to to come true really because you were out there in the thick of it and you were just piecing it together using every bit of passion you had just to make it work and string it along and that, that that's when it really seems to you know work the best well that sounds the, the having someone in your ear as you're talking seems to be like patting your head and rubbing your tummy yes yeah, it's the nice thing to get used to you have to sort of, sort of disconnect things yet still absorb is very that would be quite disconcerting um, certainly initially the worst one for me was when i was doing the world rally championship um the year before last 2015 and i was doing the uh, newtown halt on bt sport and we had effectively two people talking in my ear as well as a cameraman and a live camera and knowing i was going on the biggest channel the biggest show that i'd ever uh, been on and I had somebody counting down to the break in my ear. So I'm having to sort of wrap things up because we're going to come back after a break. We're going to go throw some of the action in Sweet Lamb. And then all of a sudden I had someone saying, no, 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 we've got five more minutes, five more minutes. 
and that was just as I'd sort of wrapped up. So you, you're constantly <laughs> on the hop. And oh, wow. that, was, that was the worst one I'd ever had, actually. That was a very difficult one to work on. Um, and that was a bit of an eye-opener for me, but it, it taught me a lot. As I say, you, you have to be light on your toes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then we did a live stream here at Cadwell Park for the rally a couple of weeks ago. And it went down really well because we got a sat van down here and we literally just talked through the action. There was a lot of filling, there was a lot of interviews, there was a lot of explaining to people that, you know, we were doing this as a bit of a test and we were also doing the TV show at the same time. So people would have to be a bit patient with us and people were interacting. We did it, although we did it through a sat link, we did it um, via Facebook as the live feed. So we were able to interact with people and that is the future of television or radio, interaction, to be able to actually live um, stream something that you know people want to watch because, do you know what, they're telling you. Yeah, I quite like, um, on a much smaller scale, obviously, but Periscope, I yeah. think, is well, we started is doing that. It's that. great. It's brilliant. And I, this, this was like, a, if you like, a higher production value version of Periscope. Yeah, yeah. It's a great way of doing it. Uh, I, I think it's great the way that you know, these questions can pop up. It's very, having done it very, very lightly a couple of times and seeing the questions coming up even unfortunately for me it's like one or two questions a minute so it's not like i'm being bombarded uh, but i imagine for you you're getting so many questions do you, did you have someone on one side picking out oh that looks a good question we'll keep that to one side we'll put that to one side or are you doing it as you're talking a bit of both i did have um the producer handing me questions that we definitely had to answer. And then I had a few that I'd be watching the screen and if it was something a bit more fun. For example, we did the live stream from the Northwest Stages and um, Harry Toivonen, the late Henry Toivonen's, uh, late great Henry Toivonen's uh, brother who drove in Group B rally just like his his brother Henry, he actually came up on the stream and started talking to us. We had David Higgins doing the same thing. So as well as answering people's serious questions, it was a case of actually, you know, chatting to people and actually welcoming people that were quite high profile to the stream. So it's a really good way of doing it. That is by far and away the biggest insight we've got into the future of media, I think. I, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great thing. If, if people can feel they're there and really part of it, that, that will grab them more. But if you can constantly tailor what you're doing and the insight that you're giving into an event or it would only really work with events and, and non-fiction I guess but if you can constantly tailor what you're doing to what the viewers want to watch then you've got if you like ultimate engagement haven't you yeah yeah because uh, uh, every time I watch the live stream of Goodwood whether it's the Festival of Speed or the um, oh what's the other one in at the end of the the revival that's it thank you sorry mind froze then um the revival i am amazed at the ability for to fill i mean obviously tons of research has been done by you know when you do it as well you've done a ton of research so you have information but it's to be able to have the wherewithal to pick it out and talk in a coherent and natural way so it doesn't sound as though you're suddenly going Oh, hang on. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right now, I better move on to something quick. Where's that bit of paper? You know that. But that what you is do is you train yourself to. It is a skill, but you train yourself to pick up on stories and pick up on things that you can throw back to later. So, you know, you start the event and you you've almost got a mental bank of things you can draw back to because you've always mm-hmm. got to fill. If you're doing live stuff, you can't just talk about what's happening there. You always have to throw to something else. Whether it's something that's happening in an hour, something that's happening on the next day's live stream, whether it's something that happened before that they can still catch online. You've got to have a, a, a stock of things which make you a bit more of an all-in. If you think of radio presenter 
um, I've done a lot of radio and you, you've constantly got to throw to things, whether it's forward, backwards, online, calls to actions. So you've got to have those things in mind when you're doing live stuff. You just haven't got a notepad in front of you if you've got a camera there. So you've got to kind of build up a kind of short term memory bank that allows you to pick bits out that are relevant. It's, it is it is a skill and it's I think it's something you can either do or you can't. There's nothing superhuman about it. If you if you can do it, it's great. If you can't, then it just takes an awful lot more work. Mm. So do you... Um you just mentioned your radio work as well so do you prefer live yeah live is is always the way i did um the last few years i've been doing a recorded radio show um which i did once a week and it ran out on commercial radio on a few stations um but then i do live stuff and live is just a different league it's just it's real you know you can react you can interact you can actually understand what your listeners want if you've recorded something four days previous then there's not one ounce of interaction about that no okay i can see that uh i'm i still prefer being mr safe with my recorded. <laughs> there's just something exciting about putting it together live knowing that what you're doing right now is what people see and you can't do anything about that if it goes wrong you've got to deal with it if you have a situation you're faced with where you don't know what you're talking about you've got to try and change the subject back onto something you do it's it, it just is wonderful to be able to be live and to be able to deliver something live to an audience. It's, it goes back to when I was at uni and I used to do a lot of acting on stage in musicals and, and theatre. And I love that. I love that live feeling. So when you're doing the uh, the rally uh, recording and the presentation and, and presenting, sorry, not presentation, presenting, um, are there any particular moments that really stood out for you with a good or bad for you personally that you were involved in um there's not really anything bad because it's all learning as you go i think the the worst experience would possibly be that experience um doing the bt sport feed for for wrc for wales rally gb where it, it sort of it all seemed to go wrong in my head when everyone's telling me to do different things in the ear and but it seemed to look all right on the screen i'm told but it, that was the in my head the worst the worst experience i can think of doing the live tv stuff um but the best bits are, as I say, doing the Formula Student and at the back of the Formula One test at Silverstone, being there to talk to the top engineering guys at Formula One and then be someone telling you, you've got three minutes until we go to a VT, so you've got to get down the pit lane and you've got to find a story. So you're constantly looking around while you're having these, these interviews and you're all having to lead the cameraman. It's just, there's so many great stories that come out of that. You'll sit with the crew on a night and a bit like a race team here at Cadwell Park, they'll sit in the clubhouse and they'll they'll chat about how the race went and they'll you see them all with their hands, oh, well, I was coming to the inside of you. It's a bit like that when you're a TV crew. You know, you, you have your, your story from the day and you all sit around and have a beer on a night and you discuss what happened. And, and those moments, you know, you, you get some great stories and you meet some great people. I think of all of it, meeting people and having this sort of network of people that you've worked on shows with is probably the best of it. You've, you're doing some TV presenting, but you also mentioned you've done uh, work for manufacturers and dealer uh, groups. What was the sort of stuff you did for them? Um, I started a YouTube channel a while ago doing car films because I mm -hmm. happen to have rally cars and classic cars of various kinds sort of going through my garage. I get bored, get another one. And I thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to do a film with one. So I had a two or five GTI in the garage. So I did that and um, it, it got a lot of views. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I'll do another one. It sort of went from there. And I just, I still make them on an iPhone. And um, I got asked by, oh, I've been asked by Infinity, by Ford, by, by a few to, to actually make films for them. So I went to Portugal with Infinity, which was probably one of the best ones I've done. Great experience for the launch of the Infinity Q30. 
Oh, I do like that. It's, oh, it's a great car. And I got flown out to Portugal and we had we were wined and dined for two days, got to drive the car on some wonderful roads. And I filmed loads of stuff for my YouTube channel. And I knew that I was one of the very first people in the world to actually drive that car and to experience it, especially from a media point of view, because it was the first broadcast weekend. So on the plane on the way back, while everyone else was recovering from hangovers and various things, I was <laughs> also recovering from a hangover, but I was editing my film. So I had the first film out there from... Um, from from Infinity for the Q30, and it, that was just a real thrill to be sort of what I felt was the the cutting edge of the automotive industry at that one point in time. You know, of course, a week later, and there are hundreds of films out there. But you know, to be flown out there to do that and to come back on the plane, get the film out, and then upload it as soon as I was back on on ground, was just brilliant. And then I've been working recently for Evans Halshaw and a few other dealer groups. So I've been doing some films on various cars and like. They came to me and said, look, we want a car review of a Nissan Leaf. And mm. I said, no, you don't want a car review. No one wants car reviews because actually if you're going to buy a car, you don't want to watch reviews. You want to get your questions answered. What you want is engaging content. So they said, well, come to us with an idea then. So I gave them the idea that I'm not a big fan of EV. I, I just would much prefer the growl of a V8 or a snarl of a V10 <laughs> or something in my cars in the future. And the thought that we might not have that at all at some point in the future is, is frankly horrifying. So the thought of driving an EV with its lack of performance and its lack of range and its expense and everything else um, just lent me to doing a blog series, a video blog series with the Nissan Leaf to try to kind of bust those myths. So I did that and it was a real honest, I think EVs are a bit rubbish, so I'm going to get a Nissan Leaf for a week and I'm going to live with it and I'm going to take you guys with me. And we did this film series over a week and we sort of covered the the key myths that I also happened to share. Um, mm. And it was an honest thing. It, it wasn't a case of every single film busted a myth and said, no, I absolutely love it. You know, it was a realistic look at how a petrol head might adjust to having an EV. And it took a lot yeah. of um, convincing from their point of view because they sell cars, you know, to have somebody yeah, being... Yeah honest and not just saying this is the best car I've ever driven was a bit of a strange one for them, but they're a really forward thinking group. And they said, look, let's do it and let's see how it works. And then they put it out on like a video blog with an actual blog series that they put some stuff to as well online. And it was great. It was just a different way of producing content and making it a bit more real rather than just, um, you know, talking about how well the gear shift works or, you know, how much tire noise there isn't. And it's just car reviews, can get a bit old and there are tons of them out there. So I'm always keen to try and do something a little different. And that's what I've been doing with various manufacturers. We did a, a back to back with the Focus RS and the Mustang GT, which mm. was one of the most fun projects I've worked on. Cause of course I got to drive these cars around and we had a drone. And, Very snarly. Oh, just <laughs> brilliant. But again, it was different. We didn't do, you know, on a racetrack drifting and line lock and all that kind of stuff we actually talked about living with the cars and the history of the cars and you know which one would you pick if you were being poetic and talking history which one would you pick if you were actually needing a practical performance car and it was again a little different to the takes that had so far been done on those two cars and it took a bit of convincing because you know to begin with everyone wants what they think has been done before but well that that's it i mean that's a, certainly a problem that i know alan and i have uh when it comes to uh, when we're, we're uh, fortunate enough to have a car to try out is that we're going well how do we first of all we've got to make sure that it's us doing you know us it's us saying this we're not pretending to be someone which i think is a tra- uh, is a trap that some people sometimes fall into but also it's but why why would anyone want to bother to listen to to us 
then okay it here it is it's us speaking it's clearly us and it's our the way we talk and our perspectives on things but why would someone spend 5 10 15 minutes whatever whatever it is on a a, a film and watch us rather than go and watch Carfection or well, that's that's the know. thing you know if if you're thinking that way then you you're already starting exactly the right way because there are too many people out there making content writing content producing things for people to enjoy but actually they're thinking about what they want to produce and they're not thinking about why someone would want to watch them because you have to start with why should someone watch you exactly as you say and if you don't start with that then it's not going to be watchable it's not going to be engaging and it's not going to be anything different to the last half average film that somebody watched so that's exactly the right way to think you know before i start anything i always think about the audience and my, my background in marketing helps me with that you know who am i talking to what do they actually want as you say do they want to watch a film or do they want something they can just flick through and get the answers they want do they want something that's funny do they want something that's informative do they want something which is really well produced and makes them sort of gasp at the you know production value you've got to pitch it completely right and it's got to start with who will be watching it Otherwise, no one will watch it. Yeah, and then something else that you mentioned earlier before was the uh, the fact that you say you film it on an iPhone. Now, uh, there you did put out a post explaining how you you do these things, uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, um, which was which was excellent to see, because the perception is sometimes that oh, these things can only be filmed on really expensive cameras and with you know 200 people and lots of crew and all the rest of it whereas you know having spoken i mean seen what you put out and spoken to others the the amount uh that goes into the production isn't always as complicated or as expensive as you may think so how do you go about designing a or or planning a film with your phone and how do you execute that well first of all as you say the the reason for doing it with low tech is because actually I've, I've done it with full crews. I, you know, I did some work with um, only motors and they've got some top kit. I've done um, the review I did for Ford with the Mustang and the, the focus was with a producer and it was well produced, but actually there's nothing to stop you with the quality of the devices we now all have to produce something which is watchable. It doesn't have to be top production value. So I literally use an app called Vodio for editing. So I film everything on the iPhone transfer it via AirDrop, which is brilliant, to the iPad, and I just edit it on there, and it never leaves the iPad. It goes straight to YouTube from there. And yeah, I use was... a three-quid mic off eBay. <laughs> and I broke well, the I bank know, with, I've, the, I've... With, the, uh, with the stand I used for my iPhone, because I think that cost me seven quid. But I actually made the stand for the iPad myself, and I had trouble getting through customs when I went to Portugal for Infinity with that one, because big metal brackets and things, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. You're going to say next that you had liquid to balance out the back as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but th- that's it exactly, is that we can, um, if if we don't have, uh, I mean, because ours is, is the way that we are uh, trying to produce stuff, is very much a budget constraint issue. Uh, but we're looking at, right, that's if you had the money, can we replicate it? And is there, is there ways to replicate it in you know without having to, just go down that line and um it it's i'm always interested to see how someone gets around these constraints because there was the there was a bentley ad a year or two ago where it was completely filmed on iphones and edit like you do edited on an ipad and bentley ran with that as their tv ad 
Well, I've just done a TV ad for the Footman James Manchester Classic Car Show. Again, filmed on my iPhone, edited on the iPad, voiceover on the iPad, and it's now on a wide range of channels um, advertising that Footman James, one of the biggest classic car shows in the UK. We're producing yeah, I'm content. To get to it this year. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant show. We're producing content here at Cadwell Park, and you know it's it's done in exactly the same way because you can be responsive and you're not having to you know be beholden to when you can get a crew down. And you're not beholden to the costs that inherently come with that either. I just think yeah, it it's allows about spontaneity. Yeah, absolutely, it? it allows the spontaneity where you would. I mean, that's sometimes when I remove my tinfoil hat. It's one of the few times I think Google Glass made sense was that stuff that just happens, that no one can plan, that you go, oh, that would have been brilliant to be able to share that with whoever, the world or a couple of yeah. people. You know, the rest of the time, no, because of privacy. But, <laughs> but isn't it about expectation? Hat. You know, if somebody, you've got to, it's easy to think that everyone wants grand tour or top gear um, quality production value in everything they watch. And that would be lovely. But actually, people don't expect that. You know, we're no. in a world where people receive media. They might be sat on the bus. They might be walking to work. They might be sat in their living room watching it via online TV. You can get YouTube through Amazon Fire Stick. I, I was, my dad was amazed. I think he thinks that I've got my own TV channel now because I was showing him some <laughs> of the YouTube stuff through the Amazon Fire Stick the other day. You know, people watch things in different ways. The expectation isn't necessarily lower. It's just more flexible. And if you play to that, you can produce anything. I've done a full TV show for... Um, I say TV show, TV style show for uh, DM Keith, which is a Honda Skoda dealership. And we produced this entire half hour um, show with various um, studio based stuff. And we just made the studio in the dealership, studio based Mm. stuff, little features, little fun things. And it was half hour long. And it was, again, produced entirely. It was a massive challenge. I produced it on my own. No one there to help me sort of coordinate things or bring people in or um, explain what was happening to people. So I had a sort of bunch of people I was trying to entertain all day as well as trying to film this thing. And it was a huge challenge, but we, we did this entirely on iPhone and it works and it, it got noticed by a few people and it's led to a few other things. So you can produce whatever you want with whatever you've got. And, you know, one day perhaps I'll get a chance to use the equipment that Top Gear have, but... Um, given my new vocation, I actually think that this was more my line anyway. Mm. So, um, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think the the level of technology we've got in our hands now is just amazing. And it it reminds me of the ads from Apple a year or two ago where they were really banging home, look, you, you can be a creator. You now have the power to create stuff in your hand, in your phone. No, we're not even talking iPads, just the phone. Um, go out and play, experiment, try. And and I think it's, uh, it is stunning what we can do now with the, the stuff that every one of us pretty much has. Mm. Uh, it's amazing. Um, when you plan a film, do you storyboard it? Uh, yes, in most cases, unless it's something I'm doing on the fly and then I'll just shoot everything yeah. I possibly can and film various links and everything else and then just pull it together afterwards. But yeah, if I know I'm going to be filming something, I'll storyboard it, I'll put a script together, I'll have different sections, I'll have an idea of how I'm going to film it, I'll do a scout for locations. and You can do that quite quickly, you can do it all you know, on the day, but you really could do with a bit of planning beforehand. So you know, the car yeah. films that I do... They are planned and there's a theme, there's a, a real story rather than just I've got a car and I'm going to film it and tell you what it's like. It's very much a story behind it. Yeah, again, Alan and I have found this the, the hard way that when we have tried to do things that will 
have never seen and never will see the light of day. Uh, that's, uh, it's very difficult until you have a lot of experience to do something on the fly um, and to be able to talk naturally uh, is is a skill that you have to work at. Um, I mean, I see, uh, again, you know, I've watched your films, which are excellent to see, and you watch Alex Goy on Carfection, but also if I listen to uh, Gareth Jones on Gareth Jones on Speed when he's doing his car ones, the ability to ju- just talk... And, and it makes you feel as though you're there. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's that's a good skill. I'm a professional presenter. I've done years of radio and TV now, so I, I can do that. But anyone can do it. Anyone can produce content. And it's if you can talk to somebody, you can talk to a camera. It's you know, it, I love the challenge of actually putting someone new on camera and telling them to ignore there's a camera there and to just be human. Because that's how it starts. That's what you get told when you first sit in a radio studio or you first stand in front of a TV camera. You get told to imagine that it's your mum or your, your wife, you know, stood behind the camera. Or, that, you know, when you're doing radio, I remember getting told, imagine there's a really big teddy bear in the corner and you're talking to that. I'm not, no idea why it was a teddy bear, but that's why I got told. <laughs> you know, you're not actually talking to anyone other than you might if you're out or you're at the pub or if you're stood at the racetrack as I am here. So when I'm talking to someone here at Cadwell Park, having a conversation with them, I have the same sort of mindset as if I'm then speaking to people through social media, you know, mm. doing the t- live streams or doing the films that we do, because that's what it's all about. You're talking to people, and if people understand that and you, you feel like you're engaging with them, then they'll want to watch it. Yeah, and if and uh, particularly if you're doing it live with someone, if you're talking to them in such a natural way that they'll forget everything else anyway. Yeah, well, I presume that's part of the plan. Sort of. I mean, you take Graham uh, Easton at Great Escape Cars, who I know you guys have had on here as well. Um, yeah. We did a film recently, which was an induction film for their process. And originally, I was going to front that, or that's what the plan was that I told Graham. And then, quite close to doing it, I changed the plan and said, actually, you'll be doing it with me. And then, when we got there, I told him, no, you can do it on your own. And he does all the intros for it, and he's brilliant. Mm. And he's never yeah. really done anything like that. And it was, you know, it took a few goes for him, and it, or in his head at least. But um, it just shows that, you know, if you can talk to people and your business is talking to people like Graham's, is, then you can just go on camera and do a live stream. But there is a lot of rubbish out there. You've, you've also got to sift through that, and that is a problem. You've got people who can't and have no intention of actually honing any kind of skills. They just film a stream of consciousness, strap a camera to the head and just sit in a car, and I, I can't get my head around that stuff it's mm. got to be thought through it's got to be proper engaging content not just i'm a person who everyone wants to hear so i'm just going to talk i don't yeah. like the the whole influencer thing and people who are clearly trying to be influencers rather than content creators it doesn't work no you you can only influence if you've got something to, if you've created something surely yeah but some people you see a lot of people sort of now will strap a camera on and just literally just do an unedited i'm talking as i go um, well, piece. yeah, I mean, there's there's so much that you see. They they see the the high profile, I suppose, the lifestyle vloggers on YouTube and think, oh, that's easy, and they don't realise the the amount of time they these people have taken to get to that point, yeah, uh, and how much work they put in. It, it, I mean, that that's that is. I'm going to sound like old man on my porch here, but that's what people have to realise is that all this stuff takes hard work. None of it just happens. Okay, you may have 
talent in an area or whatever, which makes it a little bit easier. But it still takes hard work to get anything out there. Um, and I, I think there's a bit of a myth that, oh, yeah, you know, I just speak to a camera, it'd be fine. Yeah, exactly. And, and not have to think about what you say or when you say it or who you're talking to. That's where people's opinion of themselves perhaps overrides why someone might be watching something. Mm. And there's plenty of examples of that if you go on YouTube. Yes, <laughs> there is. We better stop it there because it'll probably upset someone. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you now. So you're, you're doing the TV, you're still doing film stuff aren't you i am um, even though you have a see this is difficult because it's to any normal person you almost have two or three full-time jobs <laughs> yeah i mean i now have a job where i am full-time in motoring and in motorsport and that for me is the dream so most of the stuff that people will see coming out of my youtube channel in the near future will naturally have a tendency to feature around what goes on here at cadwell park and you know, a lot of my, for my audience, that's fine. Um, but there will be some of them that perhaps want some more sort of normal car stuff and it'll come in time. But at the moment I'm, you know, making sure that I'm absolutely focused on what we're doing here because it's a huge challenge that I've taken on. So there'll be a lot more motorsport stuff. There'll be a lot more kind of Cadwell Park focused stuff, but Hey, the good news is there are no corporate messages governing what I do. Um, Jonathan Palmer and the, the other guys here at Motorsport Vision are quite interested to see how I combine my kind of media skills and the experience I've got producing stuff with the role of circuit manager here at Cadwell Park. So it should be fun and it should be, uh, I hope, watchable. And I'm trying to kind of take people on this journey with me because I'm, I'm, it's a real journey into the unknown. You know, yes, I'm doing some of the things that I always did in a new setting, but this new setting is like a different world. And uh, I, I do hope, and I've had a few people actually say to me that the way I kind of announced the, the job as soon as I was allowed to, the way I've kind of um, brought people with me as I've sort of gone through from the uh, starting job to then things that are happening here and the things I'm excited about kind of feel like they've gone along with me. And a few people have genuinely said that to me, which is, which is perfect because that's exactly what I want to do in the, perhaps in the absence of some of the work I was doing in TV, which naturally will take a, a bit of a backseat for a while at least. I think mm. it's important that um, I open up what I'm doing here so I can kind of take that audience with me. Yeah, no, no, it is, it is been interesting to watch, certainly. So um, what what does, okay, so you've said that there's a business manager, sorry, I'm just, I'm trying to form the question in a remotely okay. coherent way, you see. There's the problems. See, I couldn't do live. <laughs> I really couldn't do live. But you, you said at the start of the show that the a race circuit manager is, is looking at the business side of things. So it is not just what happens on the circuit on a race day, but you are having to look at everything. You've not been ages in this role, and I take it you've had a bit of a crash course in, right, here's everything, now go be brilliant, please. Yeah, absolutely, here are the keys, um, <laughs> off you go, yeah. Yeah, we'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so presumably you've got targets, not that I'm going to ask you what they are, but you've got targets and you've got the the owners have said, these are our hopes and ambitions for the circuit and we want, this is how we want, this is where we want to be, now we want you to be able to help us get there. So you, you've got all that on your um, 
on your plate. Do you take this as how are you looking at this? Is this pressure or is this an exciting challenge? What how no, are definitely you... the second option. I mean, there is pressure, but um, I always respond best to the pressure I put on myself. Um, the, the challenge here is extraordinary. It's, it is genuinely in terms of the workload, in terms of the things I've got to get my head around, in terms of the new skills I've got to um, develop and train to, to be able to um, do this job. It's the biggest challenge I've ever taken on in my life. It, it's huge. Um, and although a lot of the stuff I might put out might make it look like quite a glamorous, I'm just playing with racing cars or you know driving around a race circuit, actually. Well, that is all you do all day. You know <laughs> Absolutely. You know don't, don't pretend it's, otherwise. <laughs> it, is, it is a huge challenge and it's one that I'm absolutely relishing. But I've got a team of people here at Cadwell Park who have, for the most part, been here for decades. Um, my management team here, you know, some of them have been here as long as 30 years. We've got a lot of experience in the group, a lot of passion for motorsport. But what Cadwell Park has more than any other racetrack, and I've been at, I think there's only Thruxton and Knock Hill that I've never actually visited in the UK racetrack-wise in some form or another, in some role or hat with some hat on or another. Um, what this track has that no other has is a passion and a heritage. If you speak to someone at Cadwell Park, they will tell you about the people side of it first they'll tell you who they came with they'll tell you you know how old their kids were when they first brought them or when they came with their dad then they'll tell you about the motor racing and there's a real feel among the team that Cadwell Park is much more than just a race circuit it's a huge part of people's lives so although on a very basic level the circuit manager's role is a facilities management job it's ensuring that the track works that the facilities work that people that come here have a great customer experience that's that's what it is essentially mm. what it actually is in more poetic terms when you talk about Cadwell Park is being able to to bring out the character and the passion that we have here in the team and in the people that visit Cadwell Park and have for you know generations and and put that out there for the world to see and that's part of a bigger development plan that Motorsport Vision has for Cadwell Park and the other circuits in the group that really plays to our strengths and capitalises on the things that these tracks do that are great but perhaps haven't been shouted about enough in the past. So my media experience will come into this role perhaps more than you know previous circuit managers because they simply had a facilities background not a media background so mm. it is a different approach which i'll be taking to this and i am taking to this role than you know i mean john who was here last um john rush who's gone to Alton park he's got a fantastic mind for detail he's you know his detail and his um method is is just staggering and he's a fantastic circuit manager as a result i'm very different my details um also good i like to think but but i have the media background so i'll take a very different approach to john and um, the two approaches will complement each other across the group so it's going to be quite an exciting time for motorsport vision you know mike groves who was here at capel before john he's at brands hatch now as a circuit manager um it's just a really exciting time all around jamie the previous manager before that is now manager of snetterton so there's a real family feel and <laughs> and although I'm, I'm sort of going off the the track and sort of not answering your question directly what I have here is a huge challenge to bring the facilities on in line with the development plan that Motorsport Vision have in mind to develop, if you like, the sales side with the sales team that we have at Brands Hatch because that's all coordinated centrally. But then to bring something new to this, when I sat there in a room with Jonathan Palmer and Giles Butterfield, who's a former competitor, he used to compete in Formula 3 in the days when um, JP was doing Formula 1, actually. You know, we've got a great motorsport family here. Uh, I sat in a room with those two at Bedford Autodrome, surrounded by racing cars, and said, look, my background's very different. You've advertised for a facilities manager. 
I'm not wholly a facilities manager. I can learn the elements of that job that I need to learn, but what you'll get mm. from me is a very different approach. And they're certainly seeing that. Um, and I've only been here a month, but you know, I'm under no illusion that I also need to make sure that the, the, the very basics of the job and the things that the previous managers have done well are still done well. And it's not all about um, media and social media. That's just something which we've kind of added on. So yeah, massive challenge, massive change of hats for me, but it, is brilliant. There's there's no other way to describe you know the way I feel about the team here, the way I feel about the the future and the opportunities we've got at this wonderful circuit. And I would say to anybody who hasn't been to Cadwell Park, I would say this, of course, but I've been coming here since <laughs> I was three years old, and there is no racetrack in the world like it. You've got Barn Corner, which actually, if you stand at the back end of the circuit and watch Barn. It looks like a rouge. It's got a huge um, undulation as it comes down onto the start-finish straight. Just the, you know, the gradient and the variation in, in height and, and type of corner around the circuit is like no other. It's a real experience. It's got a real historic feel to it, and there's a real feel to the place. Even on a down day like today, when we're just doing maintenance and we haven't actually got anything on the track, there's just a really great atmosphere here. And I, I would urge anybody to come and have a look at what we're doing. Come and have a look at this circuit, and you know maybe just maybe you'll make it into one of my films in the future <laughs> well there's a, there's there's a uh, there's an incentive for anyone um so for anyone who doesn't know what race series do pitch up at cadwell oh it's just a, a wide range we can't run mm-hmm. um the big series like uh, british touring cars simply because the track isn't wide enough. That's, that's the very basic of that. And our, our runoffs are a bit Monaco-like. So um, we, we struggle in the big series. We can't run them. We've had Formula One cars down here recently to do demonstration laps. Um, we can run something as fast as Formula Three when we run it as part of the Monoposto series, which is part of the MSVR series. But really, F3, Formula Jedi, Time Attack, they're our kind of fastest um, series that we run here. But we run a whole range of different uh, motor racing series. This weekend, we've got the BARC with everything from classic touring cars, um, the likes of which include, you know, Opel Sconas through to Honda Civics, right through um, the ages, historic touring cars, classic touring cars. But then you've got also the Legend Racing Series, which is kind of like these tiny little um, space-framed Chevy 57-type cars Mm. um, with V8 engines there, cracking to watch. But then, you know, last weekend we had everything from MX-5s right through to Porsche racing. So there is a full range of racing here. We have rallies on here. But the big heritage with Cadwell Park, although I'm talking very much from my background in cars, is motorbike racing. That is Mm. what we do the best. That is where our heritage is. That is where our biggest audience is. And that is where the soul of this place really comes alive. We've got British Superbikes, which has its probably most infamous round, if I may say, here at Cadwell Park and a lot of the the (laughs) riders and the teams revere this place. It's a place you've got to put ultimate concentration into. It's, you know, it's probably along the lines of the Megs and things like that for road races because you've got such a different challenge here um, with the the lack of runoff and how fast the circuit is on a British superbike. So we've got that weekend in August, which is our headline flagship event. We've got a whole range of other bike racing meets, including Thunder Sports, including the British Motorcycle Racing Club, which is the oldest motorcycle racing club in, in the world. You know, it's it's all about motorcycles when you come down to Cadwell Park here. We do have the cars and it's a big part of um, my background, but the, the motorcycles are just something else. To watch top-end riders down here on this circuit is just out of this world yeah i i do remember i i'm not a massive motorbike fan but i do remember because it used to be on i'm showing my age here 
used to be so much on terrestrial TV. Yeah, and it still is. <laughs> There's still Sundays, a lot of motorcycle and you, and you, racing out there. Yeah, and you'd be able to watch it, and I'd be just gobsmacked at the levels of skills and equally petrified at the same time going, well, I'm, I'm not going to get on a bike. You're all right, thanks. I'll leave it to these leather-clad lunatics. They, they are, they're not lunatics. They're gladiators. That's the way I like to see it. You know, I've, I've got my head into the bike world since coming here. And like you, I didn't really know that much about motorcycles before coming to Cadwell Park. I knew a bit, and I, you know, I'd, I'd watch the racing, um, MotoGP, British Superbikes, things like that on TV. But actually being here, meeting the people that are behind the motorcycle world at Cadwell Park, the people, the bikes again the heritage and the history it's a different world and it's one that i'm really really enjoying getting to grips with but um it, it is a completely different set of people different set of values different set of attitudes and i i love it it's a great world to be in excellent i think i'd like to move on to the quick fire questions now okay um and sort of round it up here because i'm very conscious of your time um, you're, you're kindly doing this during the middle of the working day. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, you haven't been long there and you're still having to learn everything yeah. by the sounds of it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let, let's leap into the quickfire questions. So I'll start with my typical first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Innovation. And it's not just EVs and electric motors. It's it's actual dynamics of driving. We can make a car feel, you know, I, I'm driving a, a 90s Citroen Saxo VCS this week. I've got a Focus ST road car normally. And the difference is staggering. It's all about dynamics and innovation. Okay, excellent. Uh, what currently worries you about the motoring world? Um, I think we're sterilizing it too much. And that's right through from motorsport, right through to road driving. I understand the need for safety and I'm fully, fully behind that. But I think we're sterilizing the driving experience. We're moving too far away from people driving cars and moving more to automation and things that take that driving experience away. And I think there are inherent safety issues with that as well as poetic values of people like me. I concur with that one. I think there is a definite uh, blandness coming across mm. um, it, sometimes it's the dynamics sometimes it is the the tech that it's a complacency is there to, is there to help us um, but it's when it interferes too much I think is is the trick that they haven't worked out yet yeah I mean a product based theory and strategy works well for a, a company like Apple but Ford need to remember that they're building things that make people feel alive mm. yeah good point so what's your favourite car to drive and why was that? In the world ever? Yep. <laughs> Experience-wise, I would have to say that um, the Metro 6R4 that I got to drive around Alton Park for a feature, which is on my YouTube channel, was probably the best car in terms of experience I've ever driven. It wasn't an accomplished driving experience. It was like driving um, a tractor with a rocket booster strapped onto the back. But just <laughs> growing up watching rallying and, and then getting to drive that thing was just an experience. And the noise and the, the way it moved and the, the brute force, it was just something really, really special. But um, for a more accomplished driving experience, I would say that of all the supercars and other cars that I've driven most recently, I'd say that the uh, Lamborghini Gallardo uh, V10 still has my heart for noise and feel and experience. I really enjoyed driving that one on the road. Well, um, Lamborghini was one of the first words my youngest could say. Um, they seemed to skip mummy and daddy, and came out with it, which is only because he had one to play with. <laughs> and we'd say every time he picked up, that's a Lamborghini. That's a, you know, if, you, if you're going to do this, if you're in our house, you're going to do it properly. <laughs> I so, approve wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, I felt like, yes, I've, I've, I've done something right as a dad. I'm going to do so many wrong things, but I've done that right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, okay, conversely to that then, what has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, uh, this is a difficult one because I, I kind of enjoy driving the cars that I drive. I don't really get to drive rubbish cars. My wife has a, a Mazda 2, which is pretty rubbish, I've got to say, um, as a driving experience. Is going. The car that surprised is that me... The, is that the latest one or the one before yeah, that is a bit it's, taller? It's the latest one, and it's okay. it's, it's not great. It's, it's okay. It's, it's what it is, what it is. She likes it. Um, but the car that surprised me the most was the McLaren MP412C. Now, I haven't driven a McLaren following that, so I can't say what the more recent McLarens are like. And, of course, that was the first real mainstream road car from McLaren. But it felt too electronic, and I was quite disappointed okay. with that. It seemed to lack that supercar feel. So uh, in terms of coming up with a car that has perhaps disappointed me, it surprised me, should we say. It was an amazing mm. car, but just felt far too electronic and sterile. Yeah, I do remember seeing reviews that mentioned that. Um, so I don't think you're alone in that, uh, in that feeling. Uh, not that I've been lucky enough to get near one, so... <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I didn't um, drive it around a track or, or you know take it to its limits or anything like that. I just as a as an experience it just didn't have that kind of wow factor of driving a supercar. It just felt a bit too electronic. Mm. Okay then. So uh, what would what car would you like to own next? Oh wow. Um realistically I've got a Focus ST at the moment and having driven the Focus RS, which is a totally, totally accomplished road car, um I'd quite like one of those. A and really, a really button. great car. <laughs> Just has everything, you know. Um, and I've yeah. got to still be sensible. So, yeah, I, I quite like one of those. But I've got a guilty um, pleasure, which I've never actually managed to satisfy. I quite like a BMW Z4. Okay. It's a strange one, I know. And not, it doesn't no, matter no, about no, the no, engine size. At I, just, all. I just quite, I've got a bit of a thing for them. Mm, I think I think they look very handsome. It's what, mm. I think it's one of the uh, better executed bangle yeah, I'd, I'd agree, actually. But I also need to get this bike thing out of my system or into my system, as it case may be. So um, I fully intend to embrace the bike thing here at Cadwell Park. And you may see me on two wheels before long, if I can get my wife to agree. Uh, well, I am. I, this is something when I was uh, speaking to James Clark, who's uh, currently at Toyota. But this is something I, I was really surprised at, is how many car nuts actually like and have motorbikes as well. Yeah. Because they on the surface would appear to be two alien cultures but they're not really there's so many there's so many so many people cross over um it, like i say I, I couldn't i couldn't get into it because one they scare me to death but two i can't afford it you know i, I don't need another vehicle <laughs> to, yeah, to take my money yeah. and time well, I've got a Saxo VTS, which um, sits in the garage doing nothing most of the time. So if anything, that will change into a bike. Not magically, you understand, via the, the powers of Autotrader or eBay. But Yes, going to see some fancy music one day on a on one of your films, and there it is, it's suddenly changed. I should do that, shouldn't I? Really, really nasty. Fade transition. in, fade out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then. Um, what is your favourite road to drive on? Um I'm going to have to say it. the road on the way to work um, is brilliant. It's, part, it's one of the top 10 driving roads um, when you see any of the features here in Lincolnshire. It's a fantastic bit of road, but it's second only to the piece of road that I now call home, which is Cadwell Park. I, I, it's a racetrack, but I see it as road, and so I'm going to answer your question with Cadwell Park. 
Ah, uh, well, the, the, the owners uh, will be pleased to see that if we cut you in half, you'd have Cadwell Park written through you as though you were a stick of rock. <laughs> so it's good, it's good to see. <laughs> uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've ever experienced? Heated seats. Okay. Why? Heated seats. Because I just feel like I've wet myself. Okay. <laughs> pointless. Absolutely pointless. I'd rather just, you know, stick to the leather in summer and slide off it in winter. I just... It just it started a, a a revolution of let's add as much gizmos onto a car as possible. So heated seats have got a lot to answer for. <laughs> Not just sweaty bums. <laughs> yes. Right then, this is the penultimate question, really. Then, um, who do you think I should talk to after you? Well, that is a question. Um, I think you should talk to a guy called Javier Beltran, who is the team manager of the Honda British Superbike Works team. He's based here in Louth, where the team is based, and just near from the circuit, actually. But he's spent a life in motorsport, and he remembers all sorts of stories going back here um, when they had the motocross at Capital Park. And I just think to get a different spin on your motoring angle and speak to somebody from the two-wheel world, if you do want to sort of put a foot over the, the divide, he'd be a great mm. guy to speak to. Okay, right, excellent. Well, I, I will add him to the uh, to the list and I will make sure I get in touch. And possibly make that. an introduction as well. Okay, well, excellent, excellent. Um, right, well, this leaves me the point with to, just before I say thank you so much, is uh, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do? Um, I'm big on Twitter. I love Twitter. Um, I think it's a great way of keeping people up to date without um, having to expect them to, you know, go through loads of material. So um, Twitter's where you'll find me most of the time. I'm also on Instagram and I've got my YouTube channel as well. And, and you know, if you if you do want to meet me in person, then uh, come down to Cadwell Park because I live here now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much for being on. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and it's good to talk to you again because we have fortunately met before. In classic uh, cars, no less. We have, yes. As you, I remember you zooming past our Capri in your MGB uh, before that dreadful road, which now no longer has those roadworks. I drove up it oh, about three weeks ago, and there's not those roadworks anymore. So you could, you could, and it's actually a really nice road. We, we should do the Capri and the MGB thing again then sometime. Yes, it's a really nice road. Very <laughs> nice, very smooth. Not that, not that I tested it at all too much with the family in the car. Uh, but there we go. But no, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and you know, best of luck with everything you do. And I look forward to watching the, uh, the journey. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Paul for coming on Review and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on the show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you want to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, we have our Patreon offer, which is available at motoringpodcast.com forward slash support, which if taken up helps support the Motoring Podcast and what we produce. So until next time, that was Paul Woodford, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.